This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. It's almost overwhelming to the point of being numb all of the information we are being subject to. And I'm just becoming used to it, but every so often you just have to kind of stop and ask yourself, I love the big picture questions, what is going on? As I try and untangle that, well, I guess we got to, maybe the reason the frequency of data is so intense, I guess we have a presidential election in two weeks. It'll be an interesting show in two weeks. Uh, I guess three weeks might even be more interesting when we know the results. And there's lots going on at the Northern Miner and its sister publications, mining.com and the Canadian Mining Journal. We are putting on the Global Mining Symposium. That's actually the Northern Miner, I guess, in name, but I think everybody's kind of chipping in there. And yeah, we have David Rosenberg, and we actually just put a story up on David Rosenberg. I mean, David Rosenberg is probably one of the hottest interviews on Wall Street right now. And so that's pretty exciting. And yeah, so he's going to be talking on November 10th. And the the conference is November 10th and it's November 12th. We're taking off Remembrance Day, of course. And here it is, David Rosenberg to present 2021 Outlook at Global Mining Symposium. And I think that's the theme of the symposium. It's going to be the outlook. So that's always my favorite stuff is tell me when I'm going to get rich, tell me how I'm going to get rich, and then tell me again. So that is all, <laughs> that is all coming up, <laughs> if they're right. Uh, Rosenberg, is he's bullish on gold. I mean, and check out his... Uh, Social media, his Twitter especially, is uh, doing phenomenal. I was just looking at it, 106,000 followers. He's got a great team together. Yeah, it's really amazing what, what happens when you really invest in your social presence. It's pretty spectacular. So he's positive on gold. I think he's bearish on the economy. Yeah, so I think he'll fit right in with the team. He'll fit in right, uh, you know, from... I, I'm not such a fundamentals guy myself. I mean, I have zero economic training, but I do like to pontificate and I do live and breathe this stuff all day long. To me, it's narrative. That's why it, like, I think fundamentals matter at a certain point. But you know that axiom they have or that expression that in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine and in the long term, it's a weighing machine? And maybe over a long enough period of time, fundamentals matter. But as you see with like value investing, like it's there are places that have closed down you're hearing about. And I, I think our world, as it becomes more digital, I think it's becoming more narrative oriented. I think the voting machine, using that analogy, is actually becoming more important. So David Rosenberg is coming and that'll be really exciting. So if you haven't signed up, it is free. Just go to northernminer.com slash GMS. Easy to remember. If you don't know much about David Rosenberg, uh, we have a whole story on him, giving him a profile. And there's also a link at the end of that article to register. So registration is free. And, you know, with the Northern Miner Global Mining Symposium format, you can actually ask questions. So... This is your chance to try and get a question in there for David Rosenberg. 
And lest we forget, there are a whole host of spectacular people showing up. Let me just quickly draw this up. We have David Elliott from Haywood Securities, Serafino Iacono from Grand Columbia Gold, John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold, and Mark Child, Chairman and CEO of Condor Gold. We have Chris Hine, Director of Pick and Pen, Peter Ma, COO of McEwen Mining, and of course, Rob McEwen. And he is Chairman and Chief Owner of McEwen Mining. And this is all in 21 days, 7 hours, and 35 minutes. And if you are interested in sponsoring it, there are all sorts of great opportunities available for you. So just hit on the big orange sponsorship info button on northernminer.com slash GMS. So with that, today's show, uh, we're bringing in, as we deal with all this information, we're going to bring in a couple of consultants from SRK. They were thought leadership partners at our last Global Mining Symposium. And it's easy to forget, usually pay a whole bunch of money for them to give you their insight. So I'm excited. It's actually happening on the same day of this podcast. So it's a busy, busy day. They are coming halfway through my recording schedule. So should be interesting. We're getting closer and closer to live radio, aren't we? Which brings me to my childhood. And also coming up in this week's paper, don't miss, we have a copper special. And I think that's really topical because there are a lot of people who are interested in these junior and mid-tier copper producers. And we have eight really interesting companies there to look at. And they don't really get a lot of attention generally. So it's just one of those you know, classic Northern Miner bread and butter type stories that nobody else pays attention to that we kind of get all to ourselves for the most part. And so don't miss that. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. Find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and also on YouTube where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And I want to turn to this TMAC China story. Canada-China relations, like a lot of countries in the world, uh, a lot of countries are having problems with China right now. And Canada is not immune. And there are a couple of stories that, again, like I keep wanting to connect. And so from the mining context, it's this TMAC uh, Shandong takeover. And so China's Shandong, a state-backed miner. Oh, and don't forget about our interview with Chris Hind, if you haven't heard it. And he, he was describing how uh, he once uh, was seeing a Chinese mining company present, and he's like, it's almost like they were talking as if they were representatives of the government. Right. So I think he said that as an observation and just an opinion, like, you know, but I think it's an important observation as we look at this story. So Shandong, which is a state-backed miner, wanted to take over TMAC resources. And it's in the Canadian Arctic and it's a gold project. And it kind of looks like a win-win for the Chinese in the sense that this stock was trading quite high. I'll bring up the numbers right now. Now, in 2017, TMAC was trading at $18.32 per share. And right now, TMAC is trading for 
27 per share. So it's around 10%, actually less than 10% of its price only back in 2017. Actually, it was way up. It was at $18.32 at one point. So the deal is for $1.75 per share, which is $149 million. So it kind of looks like a total win-win for the Chinese government, which doesn't necessarily even need to make a profit. They just might want the gold. And then they have a nice, you know, little base right in the Arctic, which everybody is very interested in from a geopolitical perspective. Now, more context, there were the two Canadians that were arrested for alleged espionage after Canada arrested Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou to be extradited to the U.S. So, right, so there's Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, two Canadians, and this is commonly seen as a kind of retribution for Canada's move against Meng Wanzhou, which really Canada was probably only just fulfilling its obligations to the U.S., which is the U.S. had an, a legal issue and then it was sent to a judge. It's not, it wasn't even really a political decision. Nevertheless, after that, then Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig were arrested for alleged espionage. Now, both these stories have movement. So on October 11th, we have a story about how China has finally granted consular access to two Canadians detained for two years now in China. So this is from The Guardian. I just wanted to really read the headline. So finally, China has granted consular access to the two Canadians. So things thawing out a little bit there. And as you've heard me speculate for the last six months, if you're the prime minister, it's not like you're not connecting the dots here. And so they are taking their sweet time. And so the Canadian government has launched a national security review of the Shandong TMAC deal. And this deal was voted for by shareholders in June. Okay, we're almost in November. We're in late October. Okay, and we're still, after all of that, now we're going to get a national security review. So my impression is that the Canadian government is stalling and delaying uh, and doing every little due diligence they can think of because they're probably not really eager to hand over a mine in the Arctic to the Chinese government, particularly after the arrest of the two Canadians for espionage who just seem like regular guys. Like when you, they seem like two regular Canadian guys. So with all that being said, let's just take a closer look at our TMAC stories. So Canadian government orders national security review of Shandong TMAC deal. And this is by Canadian Mining Journal and Northern Miners staff. Nice to see the staff working together. Months after shareholders of TMAC resources approved a takeover of the company by China's Shandong Gold Mining, the federal government has ordered a national security review of the transaction. The $149 million dollar 75 per share deal. This is peanuts. $149 million was announced in May with more than 97% of shareholders. Like that's like a middle-class neighborhood can go and buy the TMAC mine. Uh, you know, a middle-class neighborhood in Saskatoon could go and buy the TMAC mine. 
The plan was also approved by the Ontario Superior Court of Justice in June. TMAC owns the Hope Bay Gold Mine, 125 kilometers southwest of Cambridge Bay in Nunavut. So TMAC put out a statement. And so this is interesting as well. And it noted that the review extends the expected timeline for approval of the transaction to February as the federal government has lengthened review periods under the Investment Canada Act due to the pandemic. And we have a quote from TMAC. Both TMAC and Shandong believe the transaction has a strong overall net benefit to Canada and does not pose a security risk. The extension to timelines is a result of Bill C-20, an act respecting further COVID-19 measures, and the related ministerial order issued on July 31st, 2020, mean that the Government of Canada may not complete regulatory review process and provide Investment Canada Act approval by February 8th, 2021 which is the extended outside date in the arrangement agreement. All to say, what they are saying here, from my understanding, is that the Canadian government, by extending the reviews, are putting the deal in jeopardy. And they're saying, and they're saying that the government may not complete its review by February 8th, 2021. Now, the outside date in the agreement is November 8th, 2020, that's a couple of few, three weeks away, six months after the agreement was signed. That date can be extended up to three months to February 8th, 2021. It's my birthday, by the way. But if approvals take longer, the deal could be jeopardized. So we'll see if I get a birthday present uh, on February 8th, 2021. I think the jury is out. So... It's interesting to see where this is going, because I think we're seeing one of my favorite themes, which is the convergence, and it's always actually been true, but I think it's a underappreciated theme, which is the geopolitical importance of mining, okay? And I'm going to, one of these days, one of these shows, and I think you'd all love it, I want to get in some Shirley Stratfor or one of these, you know, intelligence organizations, think tanks, surely they have an expert in the natural resource field. I mean, wars in the past were often fought over resources, among other reasons, but it's not an insignificant thing. So here we see this kind of interesting collision. It's, it's not like, uh, this is not a latent theme. This is right on the surface. Now, there's a, another wrinkle to this story, which is that there was a COVID-19 outbreak at the mine. And so here it says, according to the staff, another condition of the deal is that senior officers of Shandong are able to conduct a site visit, something that's being delayed by a current outbreak of COVID-19 at the site that began in September. The company has reported 14 confirmed positive cases and two presumptive cases, although most have been asymptomatic. The company is in the process of commissioning rapid testing equipment that has been deployed to the site. Since July, the mine has been operating on a reduced operating plan, running the processing plant for three weeks and then idling it for three weeks. Nevertheless, with reduced capacity and staffing, the mine produced 18,420 ounces of gold in the third quarter. Now, just a little bit more... So you see how TMAC is getting really, it's funny how this mine, because you know, 
the Chinese government really wants this mine. I think they see it as basically paying nothing for a whole bunch of gold in a very strategically important place. The Canadian government, let's see if they're dumb enough to take our, you know, $150 million in fiat uh, that we just print off. Uh, okay, so going deeper here. News of the National Security Review came the same week as tensions escalated between Canada and China over Hong Kong and other issues. The Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper, reported that at a press conference on October 15th, China's ambassador to Canada, Kong Peiwu, told Canada to refrain from giving pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong asylum in Canada. Pretty heavy-handed, isn't it? According to the newspaper... Ottawa accepted at least two Hong Kong activists as refugees in September in the wake of China's imposition of a national security law in the former British colony. Yeah, Germany has also done this. I was just reading the paper this morning. Quote, we strongly urge the Canadian side not to grant so-called political asylum to those violent criminals in Hong Kong because it is interference in China's domestic affairs and certainly it will embolden those violent criminals. The Globe and Mail quoted the Chinese diplomat as saying, If the Canadian side really cares about the stability and the prosperity in Hong Kong, and really cares about the good health and safety of those 300,000 Canadian passport holders in Hong Kong, and the large number of Canadian companies operating in Hong Kong, you should support these efforts to fight violent crime. So you see there, there's a manifest meaning and there's a latent meaning, and I think both are meant to be communicated. The manifest content is, oh, well, if we have violent criminals in Hong Kong, you shouldn't be hiding and we need to deal with them so that Hong Kong can be safe. So that Hong Kong is safe for all 300,000 Canadian passport holders and companies operating in Hong Kong. But the latent, not so hidden meaning is we have 300,000 Canadian passport holders in Hong Kong and we have a whole bunch of Canadian companies in Hong Kong you should probably not do this. Continuing, Kong also cautioned Ottawa not to interfere in China's internal affairs and its treatments of its Uyghur minority in Xinjiang. Kong's comments came shortly after Trudeau accused Beijing of practicing, quote, coercive diplomacy on both issues and on the detention in December 2018 of two Canadian citizens, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who were incarcerated after Canada's house arrest of Meng Wanzhou, a top executive at Chinese tech giant, Huawei, due to an extradition request from the United States. Kong replied, there's no coercive diplomacy on the Chinese side. Those two Canadian citizens have been prosecuted because they were suspected of engaging in activities which endanger our national security, end quote. So real tensions between Canada and China. And now let's go to, we have an editorial from Trish Saywell. Souring Australia-China relations puts coal in the crosshairs. Australia is also having issues with China right now. Let's turn to that story. Relations between Australia and China have been strained since Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an independent global investigation into the origins and initial handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The Conservative leader has also criticized China's recent imposition of new security laws in Hong Kong and suspended its extradition agreement with the former British colony, which reverted to Chinese rule in 1997. Remember, this is an editorial. Beijing isn't happy. Earlier this year, China imposed an 80.5% tariff on Australian barley imports, 
imposed restrictions on some wine and meat exports, and told Chinese students and tourists to refrain from traveling to Australia because of what it described as racial discrimination there. More recently, China in August detained Chang Lei, an Australian citizen born in China and television host for China's CGTN English language television service on allegations of national security crimes. In September, two Australian journalists, Michael Smith from the Australian Financial Review, and he was the correspondent in Shanghai, and Bill Bertels, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Beijing correspondent, these aren't small organizations, they're major Australian media, fled the country after being interrogated about Chang Lei by Chinese state security agents. But the tensions were seeded two years ago when Australia became one of the first countries to ban Chinese technology companies Huawei and ZTE from supplying its national 5G network. Back to Huawei, okay? Now, how does mining factor in? It's through Australia's coal exports to China, which are quite large. Uh, the souring relations appeared to have escalated this week, with initial reports from S&P Global Platts and Argus Media that Beijing has instructed some of China's steel mills, power companies, and coal traders to stop importing Australian coal. By some estimates, about 27% of Australia's metallurgical coal and 20% of its thermal coal is exported to China. Now, this seems to be news to Australia's trade minister, Simon Birmingham, who on October 13th said, quote, we take the report seriously enough, so they haven't been informed. We take the report seriously enough certainly to try to seek assurance from Chinese authorities that they're honoring the terms of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement and the World Trade Organization obligations. We do know from recent years that there are certain cyclical patterns to the way in which China has managed coal importation, and this may be another case of that. So you see the diplomacy here. Uh, well, we sure hope you're following the law in regard to the WTO and our Free Trade Agreement. And then it looks like the Australian minister is giving... China face-saving move of, we know that there are cyclical patterns in the way that China is managing its coal imports, so maybe it's just that, and we don't need to look at this any further. So there's a lot more in here. I could spend all day on this, quite a bit more, but interesting geopolitical elements here to the whole mining sector. Moving right along. You might remember the Bungu mine where there was an attack. Uh, Samafo used to own it and they shut it down following an attack that killed 39 civilians. And this is in Burkina Faso. It's a hot spot for terrorism. And now Endeavor Mining, which is now West Africa's top gold producer, says it has resumed operations at its Bungu mine in Burkina Faso and they purchased it from Samafo uh, after Samafo shut it down. So it is reopened. And they're working in close partnership with Burkina Faso's government on a new security plan. And you can imagine the Burkina Faso government wants their mines to stay open because they benefit from it. So it sounds like Endeavor is pretty deeply into West Africa. So we have Sebastien de Montessou. Endeavor's president and chief executive, who said in a statement, the newly acquired assets are now well embedded into our West African operating model. In addition to the significant procurement, supply chain, and GNA savings, we're also seeing the benefits of softer synergies that arise from being the largest gold producer in Burkina Faso. So they're all in in Burkina Faso. And they expect to achieve the top half of their 2020 production guidance 
range of 130 to 150,000 ounces of gold at all-in sustaining costs of 620 to $725 per ounce. So with gold trading at $2,000 or $1,900, they're making quite a bit of money off every ounce. And if they're getting close to 150,000 ounces, yeah, you do the math. It looks like back of the envelope, $150 million right there. So also interesting. Now, we don't want to go too long here, so let's just wrap up. Glencore is in talks to supply nickel with car and battery makers. And CEO Ivan Glazenberg said during the Financial Times Mining Summit, quote, a lot of the automobile guys and the battery guys are talking to us about nickel. And we're going to see in our metal prices, nickel continue. It broke $7. So it's really continuing to move higher. You know, everybody was talking about copper, but here we have a, yeah, but uh, nickel is really the big performer right now, although copper's not far behind. And finally, uh, just a couple of headlines. Kirkland Lake is raising their dividends. And if you look at Kirkland Lake's stock chart, it's quite phenomenal. Anecdotally, it looks like one of the best performing gold stocks of the last few years. It's very impressive when you look at that chart. And finally, the diamond market is showing signs of revival. And we have a great piece by Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of Diamonds in Canada and the Canadian Mining Journal. And yeah, it sounds like there is light at the end of the tunnel for diamonds. And actually, they sound like they're only 5% off their February uh, sales numbers. So that's pretty interesting. So diamonds making a comeback. That's also on northernminer.com. So with that, let's turn to metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com for supplying us with these prices each and every week. And if you'd like to ever find them for yourself, just go to mining.com slash markets. And on October 20th, gold is trading at $1,900.61. That is $23 lower than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $24.39 per ounce. That is 66 cents lower than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $856.34. That is $18 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,354.68 per ounce. That is $72 lower than last week. So all of the precious metals are down, but nothing dramatic. Down, but not out. And Turning to our industrial metals, copper is down a penny at $3.05 per pound. Aluminum is up three cents at 85 cents per pound. Lead is down a penny at 80 cents per pound. And nickel is up 28 cents at $7.08 per pound. Tin is also higher at $8.34 per pound. That is eight cents higher than last week. Cobalt is down at $14.97. That's 23 cents lower than last week. And zinc is unchanged at $1.10 per 
per pound. So precious metals down, industrial metals steady and higher, and nickel steals the show, breaks $7 at $7.08 per pound, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have SRK's Mark Nape, corporate consultant and managing director in Australia, and John Fall, who is principal consultant, corporate advisory in North America, two world-class consultants with SRK. They are thought leadership partners in the last Global Mining Symposium. And what's so awesome about this conversation is you get, once again, cutting-edge information on another key aspect of this industry, which is technical reporting, transparency, how companies may or may not exaggerate information when they are trying to build a story. If you are an investor in this sector, or if you are a junior mining company, or if you are a large mining company looking to know the latest information on this subject, you have to listen to this. I hope you enjoy it. Mark Nape and John Fall from SRK, and we'll see you on the other side. So joining us today, we have from SRK, we have Mark Nape, Corporate Consultant and Managing Director in Australia. And John Fall, Principal Consultant, Corporate Advisory in North America. Uh, Mark and John, welcome to the program. Thanks, Adrian. Good to be here. Thanks. Great. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about reporting and uh, and all of the, basically, the technical side with Mark Nape and more the investment side with John Fall. So, Mark, starting with the technical side, what is the state of reporting in 2020 like from my understanding we had briex 20 years ago brought in the 43101 after the that big scandal we had the 43101 come in correct me if i'm wrong now where are we today and what's the situation what are people concerned about look and that's good and you know here in australia we had um the poseidon uh, poseidon misreporting back in the late 60s, early 70s, that eventually led to our equivalent of that 43101, which, yeah, we call it the jaw code for public reporting of exploration results, mineral resources or reserves, and of course also uh, related feasibility study information. So I think we've come a long way 2020. I think, you know, there's always a way to go. I think what we've done over the last uh, 12 to 15 years is to introduce consistency across many of the international markets and these international effectively reporting codes uh, mentioned in 43101 or the JORC code. They're part of a, a family and suite of codes that are becoming common with common definitions. And the important thing for us is to you know, ensure that the people that make use of and report under these codes, the competent persons or qualified persons reporting, uh, do so with a great degree of knowledge and understanding uh, so that they are indeed competent to report consistently and transparently. So we've come a long way and always a ways to go. Very interesting. And so are these standards, these technical standards, are they global? 
have we reached a global standard or is it still kind of depending on where you're based? Like, I guess not everybody does a 43101, for example, right? Yeah, so they're all a little different. Um, there's a set of, um, if you like, a framework uh, from an international perspective, a, a framework of common definitions and and a template which many countries are following and or the templates being created from some of the best practice from different countries. So there is no one international code, but there's a lot of common ground with a few tweaks. Uh, not every country is on them, but many are going, either have a similar standard and or are working towards a similar standard. So it's a good thing. It would be great if we had one, but you know, in <laughs> The world is not so simple. We, we Each country likes to have their own little tweak, but it's great that, that there's the international collaboration and cooperation to attempt to have common understandings of what it is we're trying to get to. And Adrian, it's interesting, you know, the U.S. just changed their reporting code from um, Industry Guide 7, which I think was put together in the probably the 80s or 90s, and, and they've just updated it to look a lot more like the 43101 code. And it's interesting, we get the question a lot as to, you know, what's the difference between the new SEC, um, which is often referred to as SK-1300 regulations compared to a JORC or a 43-101. And, you know, I think what Mark mentioned there, the underlying, um, let's call it technical guidance, which is, uh, you know, usually referred to as CRISCO, uh, it, it's really consistent now between almost all of the, the reporting jurisdictions. So, you know, we do have that underlying framework that's consistent. Uh, you know, the, what we probably don't have consistency yet is across the, the, the various QPs and, and competent persons as to how they actually interpret that and, you know, what, they're, what they believe is appropriate for disclosure versus, you know, what another QP or competent person might accept. Okay, help me out with uh, QP. What is QP? Sure. So a QP is a qualified person, um, which competent okay. person person is pretty much the same definition between the codes and it really puts the onus on that person who is taking responsibility for the the resource reserve or other you know means of public reporting as to its accuracy and reliability uh, so it it really the the, the codes can't be 100 prescriptive because there's so much variability in mining projects that uh, you know you just can't cover all scenarios in the rule itself so it relies upon the um, you know, the, the knowledge and expertise of the individuals that do the work. And, and you know, through that, there is a, let's call it definition of either a competent person or qualified person, depending on where you are in the world. Okay, that's perfect. And we do have a lot of students that listen to this podcast as well. Could uh, either John or Mark, uh, could someone define a 43101? Just because there's people who are going to be listening to this that are going to be, what's a 43101? Is, is there a simple definition that one of you could help us with? Yeah, sure. Uh, so 43101 um, is just simply the name of the Canadian regulatory code, let's say, that dictates mining disclosure. So it's under their national instrument. I guess that's their set of codes and the, the location is 43101. So we often call Canadian disclosure um, or reports that follow the Canadian standard of disclosure, NI43101 reports. Um, it simply refers to that location and that set of guidelines that the Canadian um, regulatory authorities have put forward. The equivalent uh, under the, the, the JORC code sets out uh, how one should report uh, similar items, but within the Australian regulatory regime. And so we 
all those uh, JORC code reporting or reporting in compliance with the JORC code, which the equivalent would be the 43101 reports uh, following the guidance in Canada for Canadian reporting. Okay, perfect. I think that'll give people a lot to chew on here. Uh, so, Mark, in, in terms of technical reporting and the standards, uh, what is the biggest challenge that you're facing when when you go in and when when SRK goes in and helps a mine? Like, what are some of the hardest things to do right now? It, tell us more about this whole process. Like, illuminate it for us. Okay, so 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 where the journey has come from in terms of these reporting guidelines and reporting standards and reporting codes is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, companies would report, if you like, the, the least they needed to do to put a message that they believed they wanted to inform the market on. And what happened is you found that reporting was often selective. So over the past 10 to 15 years, uh, particularly over the past, uh, you know, um, 10 years or so, the onus has been virtually similar to the accounting guidelines and standards, which is, if not, why not? So you are expected to report on all material matters that would have importance to the reader. In our case, it's the investor and the advisors from an Australian point of view. The dual code is to inform investors. And so taking people along with that guidance of, uh, if you're not reporting on a particular matter, why you're not reporting on it? And when you do report on it, what do you actually mean? So drawing out from the competent persons who compile these reports to give more than simply the facts, but to say, so why is that an important statement? If you drilled in a certain way, sampled in a certain way, assayed in a certain way, or modeled and estimated and reported, your resource or reserve in a certain way. Why is that appropriate and applicable? So unpacking the information and providing that professional opinion is a is a journey that I think we're currently going through, and that's a value add in terms of informing the reader on. So why is this important? Interesting. So it's almost a context. There's a move towards adding context rather than the the least amount of information possible. Actually, volunteering more, which I think goes with this kind of, I think they're with the whole ESG trend and this move towards transparency. Would you say that's a fair uh, characterization of what you just said? Uh, yes, I'd say so. And the other thing that many people forget or, or perhaps they don't realize from the start is these reporting codes, typically uh, the JAW code in particular, in the first uh, couple of lines of the JAW code, it says this is a minimum standard and minimum guidelines. In other words, Yes, you're encouraged to follow these at the least and preferably more. And that's that's a difficult matter for people to overcome and, and, and grapple with. But yeah, fair summary. Interesting. And and John, are these standards enough? Is it enough for investors? Uh, are they asking about it? How important is it for investors? You know, it's it's really it's a complicated question because these these reports and these disclosures have so many different roles in the industry. You know, what, what we often see is that the companies, especially the earlier stage junior mining companies are going through the development process on their operation or on their projects. And they're going from, you know, uh, exploration stage to scoping stage to pre-feasibility to feasibility. And through this process, they want to be able to report to the public markets what they see and, and what they know about their project and try to 
inform the markets about the, the technical details, but also they're trying to sell the project um, you know, to shareholders. They're, they're trying to promote their project. And so, you know, we, we have kind of a, let's call it a, a three levels of use here between the actual development studies that are needed to advance the project, um, the public disclosure that is required by the law, and then the promotion of the project that the company is trying to, you know, inform the market and get excitement about the project and get people to, um, you know, purchase the shares. And so those three uses aren't always necessarily um, going to have the the same outcome or the the same um, final result. So when I work with investors, you know, one of the challenges is if, for example, I'm reviewing a feasibility study and someone wants to fund that operation, it's really looking at that feasibility study and saying, was this a feasibility study that was completed to actually build um, this operation? Or was this a feasibility study that was completed more from the standpoint of public disclosure and marketing? Uh, because you can't always build the designs that happen to come out of these documents, even if it's a reasonable public disclosure. Um, it's not always a reasonable operation or a reasonable design to be able to, to build to. So that's you know one of the major challenges that I see with my clients is how do we interpret the data that has been put forward? How do we interpret the designs that have been put forward? And most, um, you know, realistically value the operations and decide whether the investment is justified or not. And Adrian, I see John mentioned those those three uses of public disclosure and that they're not always on the same page. I guess here in Australia, we often talk about and the, and the regulators talk about forward-looking statements and the reasonable grounds for forward-looking statements. So, you know, are they factually based? Do they have a reasonable basis? To support a forward-looking statement, for example, you know, production target and uh, and the plans for an operation, versus I guess the promotional side, which might be more aspirational, and that's when that's when we find the reporting gets a little bit into trouble, when too many aspirational statements are included and not necessarily aligned with um, a reasonable basis or reasonable grounds for making the forward-looking statements and. That, that's when the regulators climb in. I mean, we have these guidance and these codes develop because people at some stage did not necessarily do the right thing. I mean, that's why we have laws, right? If if everybody did the right thing, uh, we wouldn't have a lot of regulations and laws because we wouldn't need them. But they come in in order to provide those uh, those boundaries. That is so interesting. These almost this qualitative and quantitative a difference between like in a sense there's the numbers like you'd, you'd think a lot of this reporting would be quantitative uh, in nature uh, there is x grams per ton and it's this stage of the project but really what you guys are saying is there's actually a lot of qualitative uh, as you say about aspirational statements there's a real it's almost like you guys need English degrees or uh, you need people with you know who can interpret language as much as anything for this. Is, is that accurate? I, I talk about reading between the lines in a public statement uh, until you understand what is factually supported versus what is more aspirational. And of course, when you're telling a story about the future, there's a bit of both in there, but you need the correct context and clarity to separate the two from each other. Yeah, I think the key is that, you know, we can have facts, we can have a drill hole that has X grams per ton of gold that's sampled from it. But you've got to remember, we're extrapolating those facts, you know, 
uh, a couple of little tiny drill holes getting poked into billions of tons of rock doesn't necessarily give you a fact of what is in the ground. It gives you some data that you can interpret and extrapolate. And the challenge that we see in the industry is when we extrapolate data, we we have a range of potential outcomes, a probability um, called probability distribution. And oftentimes when Mark mentions the aspirational side of things, uh, people might select, let's call it the, the less likely, still possible, but less likely outcomes um, instead of the most likely outcomes. So they may still be correct that what they predicted is possible, but they start to get beyond what's likely. And, and, you know, that's where we probably run into a lot of challenges. There is so much interpretation in this. And that's, I guess, you know, where the QPs and, and competent persons have to play their role is interpreting things most reasonably. I think there's two just... John, listening to that as well, you know, you, you mentioned that a feasibility study can mean different things to different people depending on the purpose. And I've actually heard that quoted, you know, you must understand that I'm a, a junior developer and therefore my feasibility study is perhaps more like somebody else's pre-feasibility study. And that's missing the point that there's a definition, albeit there's some gray, uh, gray bands in terms of, um, once you're within those. So uh, I thought, that that's definitely interesting uh, in terms of reporting and how we report and understanding the context of of that reporting. I'm glad you mentioned all these different kinds of studies. Like, could you walk us through the journey, uh, Mark, of a junior developer? Like, what is the first? Do they do a preliminary economic assessment? You're an expert in reporting. What is the journey of say, if I just started a mining company right now, what do I have to do? What is the, the roadmap? Yeah, look, and uh, John, John will chip in, I'm sure. So, so for example, here in Australia, from a from a what can you talk about in terms of studies and levels of studies? We'd go from a scoping study, uh, which is still quite early stage and uh, based often on uh, assumptions, to a pre-feasibility study, which has more data, more accuracy. And, and a greater reliability, and then through to a feasibility study on which often the decisions are made to advance the project uh, to final engineering and or construction. So each of those is a decision point on doing more work, but the feasibility is normally that gateway as a decision to construct. In Canada, uh, the preliminary economic assessment is another uh, assessment tool which is not defined in Australia. And that's a very early stage of a rigor and assessment, often when you don't have a lot of confidence yet in your uh, mineral resource, you don't necessarily have an ore reserve, but you want to do some analysis and report the preliminary outcomes. And, you know, in, in some ways, some people might be doing that in a scoping study here in Australia, but you can't report the outcomes of that as forward-looking statements because they're based on two preliminary uh, data. And John, in in uh, in the US, I think it's a technical assessment that one now has to do as an early stage assessment of the um, reasonable prospects for a mineral resources uh, eventual economic extraction. If I'm correct. Yeah, the uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure the name. It might be preliminary assessment as well. But I think that the you know the overall study structure is the same, you know, names might change a little between jurisdictions and even within jurisdictions, we hear different terms, but, um, you know, it's really the stage gate process, which is you, 
you try to make your decisions um, and interpret your project based on the level of data available. And early on, you want to make a decision if you have a project that's worth investing significant funds uh, to take to the next level, because each stage of study is going to cost significantly more money, especially when you look at data collection like drilling. You might be able to do a scoping or, or PEA stage project for less than a million dollars, um, whereas a feasibility study might cost you 10 million or even 100 million dollars. So you need to be able to stage your process and evaluate the prospects and economics um, as you go along and make sure that if you want to go into that say feasibility stage that might be tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, it's actually a project that's justified spending it on. And so that's why we take it through these multiple levels of study with different levels of, of data supporting it. But Adrian, also just winding it back, we're talking there about technical economic assessments in those studies. Obviously, if you go back to the early stages of the, you know, the explorers, of course, the first point that they're looking to do is to identify um, uh, potential targets that they can define and hopefully, you know, in conducting early to advanced exploration, make a discovery and then advance that exploration with more knowledge. And of course, those that kind of information and those kind of releases are very important to that side of the market, you know, before you even get to those uh, technical economic assessments of the study types we mentioned. So, uh, the pipeline is, you know, exploration, discovery, advanced exploration, resource assessment, technical economic uh, studies, and then your decision to construct, design, construct, and then obviously op operate. And we shouldn't, uh, you know, forget that ultimately what many people talk about as part of the ESG, the environmental social governance as well, is a robust analysis of mine assessments and what will be required at mine closure stage. And that's become a more and more important and more rigorous assessment uh, in many countries and many jurisdictions. And I think we'll continue to do so. But we now talk about, you know, uh, planning as early as possible in the stage. Think about how you're going to end that life of mine and close the mine. So planning for mine closure as audited might sound, is something to consider even in those early study assessments. That is so interesting. And that was a, a question I wanted to ask you was, how do these standards evolve? Or is it the industry? Who's deciding? Is this government legislation? Like who's deciding on, let's say, the mine closures being more important now than five or 10 years ago. Is is that the industry itself that's making that happen? Who, who's you know pushing for that? Is it investors? From my side, it's all of the above. Um, you know, you, you have a constant dialogue between the investment community, the mining companies, the regulators, as well as, you know, what actually is happening in the industry, what the regulatory authorities are seeing and the problems they're trying to mitigate. So, uh, you know, the, the U.S. changes in the reporting standards over here, are probably a good example where that process was multiple years industry group worked with the regulatory authorities to help put together preliminary um, rules and regulations that went out to the public where comments were provided, quite extensive comments. A lot of those comments um, were taken into account by the regulatory authority, both from public investors, as well as the mining companies themselves. Uh, and, and so it really is a iterative 
and collaborative process and how these things evolve. And, and then just, again, because the competent person, a qualified person, they, they play such a role in the, the work itself, they really drive the process. Um, you know, what best practice is seen between um, individuals uh, really gets carried across multiple projects and, and might become the new standard as, you know, new best practice gets established. We talk about, you know, industry does a fair job, but of course, investors and lenders play an important role. So, for example, the whole discussion over the past several years on the responsible investment in mining projects is the recognition that mining is an essential activity to, you know, support uh, our human endeavours and activity. But the point is, from the lenders and investors' point of view, uh, ensure that the money is being spent and the people spending that money on the studies and the mines and the development are doing so in as responsible a manner as possible. And when you unpack that, you start adding these additional guidelines and or standards around, you know, we've just mentioned mine closure, but of course, you know, we're all very aware of um, the issues around tailings dams and, you know, there's a new international tailings standard uh, which will go a long way to bring people up to a, a common level of, uh, tailings engineering designs and assessments um, as well. So these these matters leapfrog each other. They develop from different places. They get adopted um, often often in one country and then globally. Uh, it, it all depends. The the tailings standards are an internationally accepted, adopted, and debated standard. For example, that is such a good example. Uh, the tailings dam because it's a kind of more of a recent thing after that tragedy in Brazil. I think the Church of England put out a document even. And so, yeah, so would it be fair then? I, I don't think it's fair then to call that just market-based. Like it really is markets and regulators all kind of feeding off each other. And if there's disagreement, like if a mining company says, well, I don't really want to make a big deal about my tailings dam and I don't want to report a whole bunch of stuff on it, uh, I guess that affects the investors won't be as excited to invest in that company. Like, is that kind of how it works? And so the market disciplines that company to, you know, make sure it has the latest in technical standards. Is that how you see it? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the way that the, the free market works is, you know, in the end, the money talks. And if the, the people with the money find that it's important, um, you know, they, they push companies to do what they think is appropriate. Okay. Excellent. So, I'd like to ask both of you, John, I'll start with you. Is there anything that, you know, is kind of cutting edge in the industry that we haven't discussed that we should mention here? Is there anything that you feel like we missed? Uh, you know, I innovation and, and where the industry goes to me is is small steps. So, you know, I don't know that there's any one thing that has really jumped out at me as being cutting edge. that's really driving the industry forward. Um, but you know, at the same time, absolutely, we see incremental improvements every year, um, whether it's from the reporting side, which we've been talking about today, or from the operating side or exploration, everything else. You know, it, it is an industry that's improving over time. And I think that it's important that we see that continued improvement and growth. Very good. And Mark, with all the technological stuff on the technical side, I mean, are you guys using AI? Like, what are you seeing that we on the technology front and, and what, what have we missed talking about here? 
Well, look, uh, and, and I mean, we call it AI in the broad sense, but we're still a long way generally from artificial intelligence. It tends to be machine. <laughs> Fair machi- point, Mark. Fair you know, point. it's machine learning and other items which ultimately fall under what we loosely call uh, artificial intelligence. But it is interesting. I, I, I worked with a, a package back in the late 90s, if anybody can think about that far back which was uh, machine learning at the time. And uh, it was around exploration and uh, target assessment and data analysis for big data, complex data. And it was just so ahead of its time that people just weren't ready for it. And now I see these tools coming out in the last year or currently and developing. And I thought, but I saw that 20 years ago, but we just weren't ready for it. So I think uh, one of the things I understand some of the majors have done quite well is to go and visit industries that are not in mining, but they might be, um, you know, aviation, they might be space related, they might be other technology companies and said, what have you done that smart that we could learn from? So getting out of the insular framework of this is how we've always done it to what's out there that's available that we could adopt as fast adopters, I think is something that's been happening definitely by those people with the energy to do it. I think for me, the important thing in our industry and any industry is the people, the workforce, the quality, the experience, you know, attracting smart people to an industry like ours, retaining them, uh, allowing them to do those smart things that drive all of this. It's still around people, uh, you know, whether it is machine learning, big data analysis, uh, innovation, technology, all of that only happens if people make it happen. And I think that that's a concern of mine is that we see definitely here in Australia. I assume it's similar in other parts of the world. Um, we've seen that good people, experienced people are hard to find. They're just not necessarily in, entering the engineering and the sciences. And then if they are, are they entering our mining industry? And uh, that, that I think is an ongoing challenge for us to attract, retrain and uh, and, and, and sell this very interesting industry to those people that we need so desperately to be in the industry. I, I, that's a common refrain. I think it's every second week I have a guest on that's saying the exact same thing, which is there's a real dearth of talent of engineering in the mining industry. It's an unloved industry. And to your earlier point, you know, as you're talking about space and mining companies looking at other I think they've got the message, generally speaking. Like there are exceptions, like we saw with Rio Tinto earlier in their year. I think the industry as a whole is getting the message, and I think they are acting on it. So I think it's kind of reached a bottom in terms of its image, and I actually see it going up, especially with space. As you say, I think that space is glamorous, and space is geology in large part. So I uh, I think that's changing, but yeah, very fascinating. Thank you, Mark Nape. Uh, and John Fall from SRK. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Adrian. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Another must-listen interview. It's almost like we're giving classes out here as we travel across all the many minds that this industry has to offer. And SRK, world-class experts, giving us the lowdown on technical reporting. 
you like the show, please share it with your friends. Leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Until next week, take care.